Hey, John. Hey, Chris. Well, uh, let's get right to it. Let's do the pledge. Before you get started, um, I don't know how to say this except just to say it. I, I got to get back to my other podcasts. Whether, whether you know it or not, there's people counting on me. I, I, I do Movie Schmovie, a podcast where I sit down with Ronald James and Steve Ritter, and we talk about movies, Chris. Movies. Yeah. The silver screen. I also have one called Playing Records with John that comes out every now and then where I talk to musicians of all kinds and we talk about their music that they love and that they make and their lives. And it's kind of where I'm needed and it's where I'm most relevant, I believe. So I'm sorry. But that's just it, John. You've got other podcasts. This is the only podcast I'm on. Give me this. I can't. Just give me this, man. Just one last time. Nah. Just one more. No. Come on. Never. Give me this. Give me this. Just one more. Not this time. Come on, man. No. Yes, just one more. No. Come on. Just, no. Just this no, one no, more no, time. no, no, no. Give me this, man. No. Give me this. No. Give me this. No. Give me this. No. Just one more time, John. Just give me this. Come on. Come on. <sighs> Come on. Come on. Chris, if we do the pledge right now, yeah. I'm telling you, you have to make this one count. Okay. Okay. Let's do it. Here we go. Odenkirk, Odenkirk is my spirit animal. animal. He is my guide. The path to enlightenment leads through Odenkirk. In a fallen world, it takes a slimy, fast-talking lawyer to teach us all to love. This is my pledge to watch and recap Better Call Saul. Say it with me. Saul. Well, Chris, this is it. This is the last episode of Saul Searching. Yeah. So it's kind of an exciting night, but I feel like there's a lot riding on this episode. Do you feel like that? Like you want to you wanna leave people with, with the impression that, that we didn't waste their time? I do, but I don't want to have any extra pressure on myself, so I'm just going to pretend it's the same episode as normal and as if we were going to do another one next week. There's a few things I want to get to before we jump into recapping the episode, but just just in general, what were your thoughts on episode 10 of A Better Call Saul, which was called Marco? Uh, well, I feel lame because I, my general overview is almost always the same of this show, which is like, hey, that was a really fun episode. I so enjoyed watching it. It was very well made and it was great. You know, so it's uh, <laughs> we really, you know, if we if we were to switch tracks and do some other show, we should just get a show that's not as good so that we can you know, constantly have a balance of, oh, this part was good, but this other part was really lame, and I wish they had done something different about this, because we, you know, most of the movies we watch and stuff, we have a lot of ideas about what they should have done better or differently, but, uh, you know, here I am stuck again for anything good to say, because it's just like, oh, it was great. I liked it. I kind of feel the same way. I, 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 I mean, I, I don't think it would have been fun to do a podcast where we sat down and criticized a show that we were lukewarm on every week. That's true. But it is funny that the critical element has been almost complete. I mean, I guess you can say we've been applying a certain level of critical thinking to our, our recaps, and we've been getting into themes and stuff like that. But I don't think that I've been very critical of the show because I have very much enjoyed the show. Like, it's a good thing we didn't start out with some kind of rating system, because I think I would have been given it, you know, B plus to A plus <laughs> the whole time. Every episode. 
Yeah. And it would start to, I mean, we're, I, you know, we definitely were somewhat in the bag for this show, but it has not disappointed. And I thought the finale was one of the best, if not the best episode of the series so far. It just, yeah. it just felt like it, it, it contained so much. Yes. And so much entertainment. It just was one of my favorites to, for watching for pleasure. I did read an interview with Peter Gold, the co-creator of the series, who is the writer who wrote the episode that Saul Goodman was introduced in on Breaking Bad. Right. This interview was really interesting. Amongst other things, he confirmed the Ignacio connection by saying that they really do have to deal with that, you know, that that's a deliberate thing. At at, at least at this point, they are very deliberate with using those characters, Lalo and Ignacio, and letting us know that it's going to be the same ones who, who he's involved with later. And right. that they, they kind of have to own up, up to that. I don't think we really talked about this last week, but we we meant to. They were brought up in uh, in episode uh, season two, episode eight of of Breaking Bad, and and then and we didn't know if they if Ignacio really was Nacho, and now we we feel sure of that. And the other thing is, um, I just wanted to I mentioned this to you, but I thought it would be good to share on the show is that Peter Gould said that. Um, that as they were going along, what they realized in the writer's room was, we like Saul Goodman, but we love Jimmy McGill. And that when they realized that, the, the, the tangling with that uh, uh, kind of became the theme of the show, that they sort of realized that that was going to be the ground that the show was walking, and that it might not be the journey to the dark side, a la Walter White, so much as, you know, uh, uh, devil versus angel on your shoulder kind of yeah. <clears throat> kind of thing. Yeah. Well, and the lovable Jimmy McGill, this guy who takes great care of his brother and stuff, so... Right, and we'll get to that. This episode really proved a lot of those theories we've had all along about what a good guy he is. So let's just let's just get to it. Uh, we did receive an email, Chris. I know okay. we've been kind of saying it to... We said last time, if anyone kind of wanted to, to get in under the wire, that they had, they had, you know, this was their chance. Yep. So we... we but this is a return customer, you might want to say. This is Reginald, who you'll remember wrote us that nice uh, letter a while ago. Uh-huh. or a few episodes back. He wrote us a couple of emails in the last day or so, and I'm kind of condensing one of them into a couple of the questions that he brought up, but this is just a nice message that he sent. He says, Thanks for reading my email about your bonus episode on the air. I really appreciate it. One of the reasons I like your podcast is that the is the passion you display for the show. To admit that the dialogue between Chuck and Jimmy caused you to well up with tears is endearing. It makes me feel better to know that I'm not alone when it comes to getting my heartstrings tugged from time to time by good theater. Cool. And then and then there is uh, this other point that he brought up. And I think this is something we could probably talk about later, but I kind of wanted to just get this out there. Uh, he says, I, re- I could really empathize with both brothers' points of view. He's talking about the, the blowout at the end of Pimento. Right. Last week's episode where anyone listening knows, but where Chuck basically revealed his true feelings about Jimmy and Jimmy realized it was Chuck all along who was kind of working against him. He says, I could really empathize with both brothers' points of view. However, I have to ultimately side with Jimmy because Chuck is holding on to an extremely malicious fallacy that people don't change. Look at all that Jimmy has done for Chuck without any other reason than his love for his big brother. Jimmy has changed from being Slipping Jimmy or could change with Chuck's help instead of his competitive scorn. Yep. I just thought that was such a good way of encapsulating that, which is really how we were leaving the two characters for the season. And I didn't realize how how much or how little Chuck would be part of this episode. But the one moment we get with him is more of a coda to what we already knew and less of a less of a a new development. Yeah, but I think you're right on, Reginald, that uh, I mean, that the fact he says people don't change. And I don't think we mentioned that last week, but that that says it all right there. It, It that that tells you why. Chuck is like this is because he has that worldview about human beings that they don't change and so so therefore I never need to give my little brother another chance to do 
to to prove himself to me in any way. Well, with that, let's get into the episode. I will tell you one more thing, Chris. Uh, you, you're you're going to hear a little bit more from Reginald, but it'll be a surprise. You, you don't know what scene, but he made a, a an observation uh, that I think is is a good question that we'll we'll address as we get to it in the plot of the episode. It'll be sooner rather than later, but just okay. starting off, we jump into a flashback, which is uh, Marco, and we see that he's kind of doing this little bar type scam where you know you whip a $20 bill out from under some quarters that are stacked on a yeah. on a beer bottle. So uh Jimmy comes in. He really did come to say goodbye in a sincere way and we can see that that Marco is bitter about it. And he says you're slipping Jimmy. What are you going to change? Yeah. And then Chuck honks the horn and Marco says his master's voice yep. and is teasing him and uh says it's like uh, it's like watching Miles Davis give up the trumpet. Yeah, yeah. That promise he made in the prison was a sincere promise, which at the time I don't think there was any way to be sure that he wasn't just saying whatever he had to say. Right, but we know now he tried for years to stick to that promise, and it was, uh, I'm sure, hard for him. And I just liked that we got that nice little bit of of clarity on just how Jimmy moved to Albuquerque, even though it's just kind of a mechanical thing. But still, you know, that he physically went with Chuck with the notion, I'm going to work in the mailroom at HHM. Um, you know, instead of what I had before in my mind, which was just, oh, it's a, a mystery. I'm not sure if he went down there and begged to work there or if he ended up there in some other way, you know. So the the image, I thought it was worth mentioning this time because the image behind the, the opening titles was just a really cool image. It was the, uh, it was a world's greatest lawyer mug falling away from the camera towards the floor and, you know, coffee's sloshing everywhere and smashing on the floor. Right. That felt like a visual distillation of what was to follow, which was the kind of the dashing of this particular dream of Jimmy McGill's. Yeah, I didn't think of it that way, but that's a clever way to think of it. But I did think when I saw the coffee smashing that it's almost like uh, Breaking Bad episodes where they would give you a, a, a big taste of some disastrous scene to come. And then, you know, you'd have to wait half the season to figure out exactly how the, you know, how the how the stuffed animal ended up in the pool or whatever. Um, right. That between we've got, you know, little things we've seen there. It's coffee smashing, but we've seen ties in the desert and with tarantulas on them and stuff. And I thought, well, they, they actually could have a scene, you know, next season or something where this crazy thing happens at the office. He's set up and 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 tarantulas crawl on his ties and the coffee mug smashes to the floor. <laughs> but I, I don't think they're actually thinking about that. I mean, I think that they probably don't have any intention of doing that, but I wouldn't be surprised if they realize in season three, hey, we can have a tarantula crawl across his tie. Right. People will love that. You know what I mean? Like right. the, the, these, I think they're very open to sort of making Easter eggs out of thin air when it comes to that right. kind of thing. Right, and tying things um, together that they didn't originally realize would be uh, cool to, to do that with. So... Uh, after the titles, uh, we come to Kim and Jimmy in the lobby at HHM, and he's taking the deal. He's letting her know that. And the two of them, they, they kind of come to terms. She confirms our suspicions that she just didn't want to damage the Chuck-Jimmy relationship, and that's why she went along with the party line last week. Right. But we could kind of tell that just from the way she was having a hard time handling it. And then Jimmy goes and meets with uh, Howard in his office. And uh, it's it's just this is when it struck me, and I I I might I might wouldn't be surprised if you thought the same thing that it just struck me that Jimmy will help them as much as he can. Um, you know, he and Howard kind of make peace, but Jimmy kind of doesn't want to hear it too much. He doesn't want you know, like I I don't think they're going to become friends, but but Howard is sort of being warmer than he's ever been. Um, well, and so is Jimmy for sure. And I think you know we've been wondering if they how clearly they would they would 
put it out there like, okay, he sees that Howard was not really the bad guy, and you know, to what degree and when were they going to show that? That brings us to our listener observation of the week. Oh. Uh, this is from uh, Reginald's email to us. He says, Howard makes such a good villain, they should keep him as the villain. His real personality was seen when he sneered at Kim about not needing her opinion. I can take Chuck being a manipulative, jealous jerk, but please keep Howard as a bad guy too. What do you think of that? I can see that just because the actor is so enjoyable as a a, a prickly jerk, but I like the turn that they've done here of of letting him be the guy who was not really bad in this situation, and they go ahead and kind of knock it out here and say, you know, basically, hey, no hard feelings. You're just a normal person now, and I'm a normal person. We're not going to worry about each other anymore. But that said, yeah, I can sympathize, Reginald, that Howard was a, a cool uh, 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 villain, and so, and they, I think they always could, if they wanted, uh, turn around and come back and uh, surprise you by letting him be more villainous in the future if he's if he continues to be a important character. Well, we can't forget that he sent Kim to the cornfield when the Kettleman's walked away. Right. So he's clearly not he's clearly not a cuddly man. Right. But I I do sort of take him at his word when he says I always liked you, Jimmy. But I think it sort of says everything we need to know about him because what the way he explains it to Jimmy is Chuck's very important to the firm or however he words it, but he basically is expressing like Anything I did to you that wrecked your life um, because I was being told to, it was was really just because I was doing it in the interest of the firm. Right. That's what we might call a reason, but not an excuse. And I thought it was, you know, most effective to me in that scene was just seeing Howard sort of realize all that Jimmy was doing for Chuck. And it was nice to have that moment between Howard and Jimmy, whose entire relationship thus far has been defined by Chuck. Right. Next scene is another Jimmy and Kim scene. This is in the garage, and this is their kind of private space, so it's a little bit more, a little bit more intimate. They hug, and he says it's nice, and right. he's very contrite, and he apologizes for for yelling at her or misjudging her, and 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 he's he's just being very accepting of his situation, and uh, uh, he says he's my brother. He thinks I'm a scumbag. There's nothing I can do about that. Well, and they started out, of course, with a big close up of the dinner trash can, just for the right. super fans to enjoy, I guess, but also. Um, yeah, I think the point is just to just sort of show Jimmy acting like, you know, I've processed it and I'm moving on. It's uh, I've I've already put it in context and I'm okay, but you can tell he still seems pretty melancholy. So we can we can kind of guess he's he's really still dealing with it. But I do think his attempts at being mature are sincere. Right, he really thinks I'm. He he's not lying when he says it is what it is and I'm moving on. You know, or whatever. However, yeah. he says it. I think he's he's telling himself that as much as her, but we soon see that he he uh, is having a very tough time. In what might be the most brilliant scene of the season, I mean, as much as I love things that happen later in this episode, I, I was I was like laughing and wiggling in my seat and stuff throughout this whole scene. I thought it was just so brilliant, and I timed it. I went back the second time I watched it, and I timed it. The yeah. bingo scene, right? Uh, it went from about. Eight minutes and six seconds into the show to 15 minutes and 39 seconds into the show. So seven and a half minutes, essentially, yeah. Of, yeah. of monologue. Um, I thought it was a, a really great scene and a really bold piece of filmmaking. And it was basically just a bingo game hosted by Jimmy at the at the retirement community that he's been. We've seen him there a few times already. And we've seen him really on. And he was definitely not on in this scene. 
uh, I thought he was holding it together pretty well. Yeah. But I thought the the content, the fact that after a while every every uh, bingo ball that came up out of the machine was was a B. Yeah. And and he and he kept trying to make patter about the different letters, and then it, but he couldn't help but lead himself to words like B for betrayal. And that's such a weird little thing to to send you over, but you know I found it real. When he got the fifth one, he said B for boy. This B thing is really starting to tick me off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, he mentioned B for Belize, his uh, euphemism for uh, for killing someone in like this last season or two of Breaking Bad is sending them to Belize. When he's oh. counseling Walt to kill Jesse, he says we could send him to Belize. Oh, I'd forgotten about that. And then Walt says, I'll send you to Belize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then he finally just breaks and goes into who knows what a Chicago sunroof is. <laughs> right. <laughs> he just completely cracks. And it's very close to what people surmised. I mean, you or someone else surmised that he could have been you know pissing in someone's sunroof and seen by somebody and that would explain the sort of the hint of a sex offender charge that we got uh, because it would be in decent exposure right i just read that online as someone's theory and i i thought that did sound like a good theory but we it took this long for us to finally find find out what it really is but it's so much worse than pissing in someone's sunroof it's uh, shitting into their sunroof uh, in, in front of their children. I mean, that story just escalated and got worse and worse and um, I thought it was brilliant. I mean, I thought it was was a very satisfying story about Chet, who he says might have slept yeah. with his wife before she was his ex-wife. Right. And then he, in the middle of all that confession, there's a brief moment of like bravado. And he says, guy wanted some soft serve. I gave him some soft serve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was just awful. awful. I mean, and the Cub Scouts in the back seat, And it's just, uh, my gosh. It, I mean, it was my favorite, my favorite scene of the show. And it was long, but... It just wonderfully long. It just kept going and it getting more and more awful. And uh, it was so crazy and over the top, but I just, you know, I, I believed it and went along with it. It just seemed like, yes, he would snap right now and start telling the story. And it was cool that we learned what a Chicago sunroof is and, and that he's divorced and that he was cheated on, which gives you a lot to, you know, we could meet his ex at some point or, or meet Chet or who knows what. I don't think we ever knew those things about him he referred to a second ex-wife on breaking bad at one point okay so we know he's been married and divorced and presumably married and divorced yeah but that scene the bingo scene was so amazing it's just it's so big and crazy that it's it it really could have been a uh, a sketch on mr show you know like a guy is calling bingo and then he slowly loses it and he finally just cracks and goes totally insane it's just, it's the height of silliness and comedy, but it, it fit perfectly in this show. And then he just absconds, and then we get a commercial break. Coming back from the break, we see the cab pull up, and it's the, uh, we see it's Chicago. And the first place he goes is Arno's, and, and Jimmy's old Cutlass, I believe, is parked in front. Yeah. And you kind of get through context clues. I guess they, they have a little dialogue about it. It's Jimmy's old car. I couldn't tell for sure if it, had, if it once looked nice, and now it looks crappy because Marco's got it. That, that, that's kind of implied by the dialogue, but it definitely, I, I, you know, you see him go up to the car and check it out, and you sort of know that he knows that means that Marco's going to be inside. Yeah. And I didn't know if I thought maybe that was too predictable or cliche that Marco would literally be sitting on the same stool after there was a reference earlier to what are you going to be doing sitting on the same stool, you know. Well, maybe this show kind of walks the edge of believable comedy characters or something because I find myself willing to 
uh, and you point them out more of like, that's, that guy's kind of a cartoon. But I find myself, you know, maybe just the way the show is shot or the way it's written and paced, uh, even even when somebody is kind of a, a wacky caricature, it doesn't occur to me to, to feel that way. I'll just go like, yep, that would be the guy, you know. So, uh, yeah, I went along. And another thing happens, Marco coughs. Which is, you know, sad to say, no matter how good your writing is, no matter how good your acting is, uh, character coughs, it pretty much means they're going to die. Uh, yeah. So, spoiler alert, everybody. Well, and he does it a couple times, but yeah, so it kind of telegraphs it. But it doesn't give too much away because you think, well, either he's going to uh, die later or we're going to find out that he's seriously ill. You know, it doesn't necess- it's, it's one of those. Otherwise, yeah, in the, in the world of movies and TV, if somebody's regularly coughing, it just never... That would never be in there unless unless that's where they're going, basically. You know, it comes out that Jimmy's mom died three years ago. Uh, Jimmy came back to Cicero to uh, for the funeral, or at least back to Chicago, and he did not tell Marco he was back in town. And that lets you know that they hadn't seen each other for a while before that, and that that was three years ago. And I think I couldn't tell in that moment if Jimmy started to pity Marco and kind of wanted to get interested in doing a, a scam, or if Jimmy was always sort of if he went back there to that location to find that person so that he could kind of wallow in his old self. If I had to just guess, I would say, oh, he went, he he wasn't going to pull a bunch of cons. He was just going to visit Marco and hang out and catch up. But as soon as, as a few hours passed and there was a lull, he couldn't help but fall back into that because he just felt kind of lost and kind of like, why not? But maybe that's kind of one of the mysteries of the character is that you could sort of believe both things that he went there kind of knowing what was going to happen, whether he would admit it to himself or not. Right. Or or that he was kind of moved by the sort of, I don't know, for lack of a better term, kind of, you know, sad state of, of uh, Marco. Watching them go through that whole Kennedy half-dollar con, you know, like I said before, it's like The Sting or Paper Moon or or, or Paper Moon or any, any good con movie. There's just something so fun about watching con jobs that uh, I just found it super enjoyable. Even though I mean they almost do it in real time, but it's just so fun to watch. It was shot like a like a scene between two characters. It played to us sort of the way it would have played to this guy sitting across the bar. Who I was a little thrown off by the fact that the guy was kind of imposing in his own right. He seemed a little beefy, and so uh-huh. I kept thinking, is he mafia or something like that? You know, is it going? Is this going to? Is this going to go bad on them because this guy is is going to come back or this guy's going to be a problem? Right. Maybe you do certain things in a series like this from time to time just with the idea that, well, for anybody who's only watching this episode, uh, we want them to get the pleasure out of it. You know, we, we can't just make this and assume that every single person watching this saw the con job from a few episodes ago and that they know what it's all about and their relationship and how they work. Uh, so let's go ahead and, and refresh, you know, the new viewer on on just what a nice thing this is to watch right here and put it in again. Yes, and I guess, too, when you think about what they launch into after this, which is this crazy kaleidoscopic montage piece of brilliance, yeah, that would have felt almost hectic without this long ramp-up to it. And I think this whole, this whole idea of this, of this Kennedy uh, half-dollar it it made you want to find out whether there was any truth to that like whether there's whether there's even a whether there's even like an urban legend about that was it something they made up for the show 
I couldn't find anything, but I did want to just make a note of what the story is because I actually have uh, a crazy theory about something that happens later that maybe you'll maybe you'll agree with or maybe you won't. Mm-hmm. But um, they mentioned that in the story uh, that Jimmy tells Marco as part of their scams that so that the other guy across the bar will overhear. He talks about how Kennedy was supposed to be facing to the to the right, which is you know to the east, which is the uh, the past essentially that's where the government is you know mm-hmm. and that this the guy who who made the coin with that's a collector's item which is with kennedy's face reversed facing to the left which is the west or the frontier i think that that is thematically interesting i couldn't find any evidence at all that there's actually ever been a different facing kennedy but that notion of facing the uh, the east to the past and facing the west to the future it's not hard to draw a line between that and jimmy's trip back to chicago and then Back to Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. Just saying, mm. um, and I'll actually, and I'll bring that up again later in a way that's even more pretentious. If, if you can <laughs> I'm excited, but I just didn't know. Is that all bullshit? Did you know? Did you know anything about the Kennedy half dollar before this? And and did that just play like part of the scam to you? Yeah, I just assumed it might be a common con. It might be a, re- a real con rather than made up for the show, because uh, I feel like I've heard things like that before uh, that might have been fake. Uh, so. I don't know if this is a real fake one or a or a made up fake one. Well, either way, it's a good fake one because it it then if it's a fake one, it, it seems like it lends itself to the montage that happens right after this, which is all the scams you've ever heard of, you know, uh, uh, and some you can't imagine quite what's going on. And I there is a little bit of heightened comedy in the notion that all of this happens over the course of a week. Yeah, but if we if we believe these guys are overachieving con men, <laughs> right? They're um, working ten hours a day anyway. Well, I love the. I, I don't know what you call that montage, but it reminded me of the fact that uh, this show has just very has stylistically felt like it really is playing around with. I mean, from the first few episodes, we talked about the palette being different from Breaking Bad. That there's more neons and there's more darkness with bright lights of different colors hitting things. Um, and I, I, you know, I feel like it throws back to those old forties. 50s kind of noirish detective stories with its style and I don't know what you call those montages where you basically have a black background and you're using the neons passing in front of the camera and right. overlapping images I don't know if there's a name for that style of montage but it was beautiful and brilliant and hilarious uh, did, what did you think <laughs> I loved it it was so fun and I just you know it's so full of lines it's like for some reason instead of doing the same kind of con a lot of times they decide to do you know one of each type of con that's ever been done or something because it goes for so long and you're getting all these little bits of of lines and i you know i'm guessing somebody had to kind of research all the classic cons and boil them down and pick out sort of an essential line from each one to throw into this big like weird soup bowl of of trickery you know and uh i looked up the 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 one late in it you see the briefcase full of black money you know Mm -hmm. and the solution for cleaning it and i that kind of rang true to me as like that seems like it, it probably would be a real thing and and uh so i, I did uh, uh look that up and it is a thing the black money scam uh is is one that, that people do and another favorite thing that i noticed is close to the end of it um one of the lines uh, close to the end of the montage one of the lines we hear is like uh jimmy saying something like no matter what happens you're going to own a full mountain range <laughs> uh, so we just know they're doing everything, including selling land. And I, I loved blind Jimmy uh, asking, are these today's numbers, you know? Right. <laughs> so then that blends into the next morning, and then we get a callback to uh, a, uh, an old line from Breaking Bad. 
because we're seeing a point of view shot sort of of a of a of a woman who seems to be kind of looking down at the camera and we we can contextualize now that she's looking at his face and determining that he's not Kevin Costner because what she says is you are not Kevin Costner. <laughs> and he says I was last night. I thought wait a minute there was a, there's a that's a throwback to something that's a throwback to something and I thought about it and thought about it. And I did a little digging around, and it was in episode 11 of season 3 of Breaking Bad in an episode called ABQ, where Saul uh, is trying to psych Walt out for something he needs to do. And he says, if you're committed enough, you can make any story work. I once told the woman I was Kevin Costner, and it worked because I believed it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So here they just decided, look, we're going to put that scene in our show. I like when uh, the floozies are kind of way on their way out and and her friend is like really not all that broken up about it you know yeah (laughs) and she's on her way out and she just goes like bye you know (laughs) yeah she almost says bye like see you around you know right i'm really not that upset so anyway they storm out and then uh jimmy picks up his phone and checks his messages and he hears he's got 15 messages from his clients and people related to his clients and 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 you know, you can remember earlier in the season when he would stare at the phone waiting for messages and when he was excited to get seven and, and you know, one of them turned out to be a lead or whatever. So he's got 15 actual clients calling him. I thought that was significant. And, uh, uh, you know, he seems legitimately concerned about the people back home. And when Marco uh, comes in to talk to him about, like, what are we going to do today? Jimmy has has begun to, to sort of feel the pull of Albuquerque and realize that that's where he's needed most or that's where he may, he may be... You know that that represents the future, the 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 current phase of his life to him at that moment. Uh, so right, he, that's he my job. To, that's my yeah. actual job. I'm going back to my job. Right, and it's hard for Marco to believe. Like I didn't realize before this that Marco never. You know, I guess he wouldn't have known over the years that Jimmy was was becoming a lawyer. But I guess I didn't realize that in this week it hadn't come up. But Marco immediately jumps to the assumption that that uh, uh, he's scamming old people. He's ripping them off. And Jimmy has to kind of say, no, I'm actually kind of working. And you can almost tell that Marco's thinking like, what, you, you idiot, you're, you're you and you now have a law degree and you're not making bank. He even says if you're a lawyer and you're not making a lot of money, then you're not doing it right. You know? Right. Marco gets a little bit nasty when, when Jimmy mentions Chuck. He says, uh, all due respect, Chuck's a stuck-up douchebag. Hate to break it to you, but he doesn't even like you. And you can tell that that's a little bit over the line, but Jimmy's kind of willing to forgive it. He's just like, no, I got to go home. And then Marco's really pushy. And this was another moment that made me think like, oh, man, this is definitely a guy sealing his fate to some extent. You know, saying, mm-hmm. give me one more. Give me this or whatever. He says, give me yeah. this. Give me this. Right. But um, how did you how did you feel in that moment? Did you know what I mean? That mounting sense of dread of, oh, this guy's asking for it. And, and whatever happens now. Again, there were so many different ways it could have gone wrong. But whatever happens now, this guy is asking for it. He's begging for it. Right. But n- nothing super horrible turns out to happen they don't get uh shot or arrested or anything he but he has a heart attack but then he immediately is sort of brought back around by saying this was the best week of my life or whatever and so it's really just a a sweet way to tie him up and and give him a happy ending well, yes. I mean, let's just be clear. They try to run what seems like an obvious repeat of the scam from earlier in the season where they come out of the bar. And there's something kind of creepy about waiting in a dark alley and hearing a guy howl like a wolf and knowing this is my cue to act like I'm unconscious. Yep. And he does look kind of ghoulish standing there in the darkness with his big grin and everything. There was something kind of scary in it about yeah. Marco in that moment. But also, he's he's happy. He's thrilled to be doing this. And I, I do kind of, I, do, I, I don't know, I do kind of love the the friendship between these two guys, even though I see that it's sort of, 
it could be seen as a toxic thing. And it made me think about how I also warmed up to Jimmy and Chuck's friendship, even though, you know, or brotherhood or whatever you might want to say, even though that turned out to possibly be a negative thing. And then that got me to thinking about the fact that Chuck and Marco could really be kind of seen as two, like they are the devil and the angel of a sort on Jimmy's shoulder, but Marco's more of an angel to Jimmy and Chuck's more of a devil in a way. Because uh, whereas uh, Marco's a bad influence, he loves Jimmy for who he is, seemingly, right. and is willing to accept that Jimmy might be slipping Jimmy, and that's fine. Yeah. Uh, and, and Chuck inspires Jimmy to be a better person, but he doesn't approve of him, and he doesn't right. appreciate him or even seem to like him. Uh, you know, I thought that dichotomy, whether they were trying to force it or not, was very, was very clear to me and very interesting that we do see Jimmy kind of torn between two lovers. And, you know, it might be a cheat to say that Jimmy had this other person that was in the wings that was this important to him. But I think it's fine in drama to to do that, to sort of surprise you with something. Like, we could have we could have just not seen more of Marco, but it was great to find out, not just that they were, like, close to best friends or partners for a long time, but uh, that, that, you know, Jimmy still has a lot of affection for this guy. Yeah. Does that moment, is that part of what sticks with Jimmy? It's not just what happens, but it's the fact that Marco died with a smile on his face because he, he, he died doing what he loved. He died doing what made him feel whole in a strange way. Right. Being himself. That means a lot. Yes. We've just talked about in a very circuitous way, but what happens is Jimmy comes out of the bar. It seems to be very sudden because uh, Marco hears the howl and then it cuts to Jimmy coming down the, the alley with the guy and they're having a very similar conversation to the one that Jimmy had with the Mark in the previous episode. And uh, they find the wallet. They go over to the body. You know, Jimmy Jimmy manages to kind of poke him into life to the point where he smiles and has his last line, which is, Jimmy, you know what? This was the greatest week of my life. Um, and then I just have in my notes, Death Without Bloodshed. I discussed a, a couple episodes back about whether this show was going to have the kind of gory stakes that, that Breaking Bad sometimes had. Mm-hmm. In a weird way, this show, if you look at the season, it managed to avoid being a, a super bloody, super... Like, the body count doesn't seem like it's necessarily part of the story, at least yet. I mean, I guess as he gets more and more into the kind of criminal life, we're going to have to see it go more that way. But, I mean, I'll be darned if I don't think the show did a fine job of kind of of kind of staying in a, in a more relatable, dramatic milieu, even though it, as heightened as it was. Well, they give you enough clues that we are in a world where... You could get killed by Tuco, but yeah, luckily they just get their legs broken. Or we're in a world where some some uh, teenagers could uh, break into a funeral home and mess with a body and stuff. But yeah, we don't spend a lot of time on that. So yeah, it is. I think it is a good tone, and it's nice that we've we've gotten through this season without a lot of you know bloodshed right in Jimmy's story. But yeah, you never know what what could come. I think it could. Still get dark next year. But the next scene is Jimmy outside the funeral, uh, which you know tells us for sure that Marco died, even though that was already pretty obvious. He's wearing Marco's ring. He runs into a friend outside. He calls him Bud. I don't know if he's actually calling him Bud or if that's his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the guy notices that he's wearing Marco's ring, and Jimmy says that Marco's mom gave it to him. But he's not a big ring guy. Um, and, and I thought it was interesting that Bud... Uh, supposes it might be worth a couple of bucks, which makes you realize maybe this was a mutual friend of Jimmy's and Marco's. So, of yeah. course, that's his first thought. Right. Oh, you might could hawk that for something. Uh, and I want to confirm that the pinky ring that uh, Jimmy is wearing, that is Marco's, was part of Saul Goodman's 
get up from his very first appearance on Breaking Bad that I found I found in the scene where he's going to talk to Badger in the interrogation room at the at the police station that he's wearing the ring. And I, there's several if you look if you just put Saul Goodman into a Google image search, most of the stills you find if you can see his his you know his his pinkies, you'll be able to see that he's wearing a, a ring on one of them. Well, and if you had known that watching this scene, it would have seemed more significant, but we know after a couple more scenes it's it's definitely significant and cool. I mean, you can imagine that the writers would be trying to think of details that made Saul Goodman seem like a certain type of flashy, kind of sleazy guy on Breaking Bad, and I think a pinky ring is one of those details that you throw in to make someone seem like they're 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 bedecked with jewels, they're trying to look fancy, but there's something kind of cheesy about it. I don't know why that is, but I've always thought a pinky ring was supposed to be cheesy. Is, is, do you share that impression? Yeah, there's some cliche about a pinky ring being a, a gangster thing. Then Kim calls Jimmy, and she asks, is this Ferris Bueller? Which is just a nod to, you know, his day off, as she calls it. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to note in that moment that Kim has no knowledge of Marco or the fact that Jimmy's at a funeral of his old partner or anything like that. She's just like, How, did you get it out of your system? And, and he's like, yeah, I think so. And she's like, good, because I've set up a meeting for you with uh, Davis and Maine, which is this other law firm that's working with HH&M on the Sandpiper case, which is in fact so big that HH&M can't even handle it themselves. And you do get the sense that she and Howard have pulled a few strings out of guilt or out of trying to help Jimmy. And, uh, you know, Jimmy says, good old Howard. And it still doesn't sound like his heart's completely in it. But at least, you know, he's now he's saying that and not Heil Hitler or whatever. Right. So there's a partner track job waiting for him when he gets back to Albuquerque. She even warms him up by saying, we've been talking to your clients, you know, so it doesn't sound like they're throwing him a bone. It sounds like they know he's done good work, you know, yeah. that his clients adore him. Right. And it, it just really seems obvious that he's going to go back and take it, but I didn't feel like he was that excited, and I honestly didn't feel that excited about it. I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting, but it's not, that doesn't answer a question for me, which is how does this guy that we've been watching become Saul Goodman, you know? Right. Um, so I felt kind of like, oh, that's that's interesting. Maybe that's where they're going to leave us for the season, that he's got this opportunity, but it didn't quite feel right to me. Do you know what I mean? Did you get that feeling? Well, yeah, and maybe also from the knowing that they're in Santa Fe and that you just know his life is going to be Albuquerque based. Uh, but still, I was hopeful in that moment hearing that. I was just uh, along for the ride going, hooray, a, a, a lucky turn. Well, see, I was not. I, I was thinking of it as like, hooray, a lucky turn, I guess. Right. I was maybe mulling over the same things that Jimmy was mulling over, which was this this notion of being true to yourself and this notion of just how happy uh, Marco was to be lying there dying in an alley with his friend by his side. Right. The next scene, before we find out what exactly Jimmy's going to do, we we cut to a quick scene over at Chuck's place. So Jimmy's back in town, and he's 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 outside Chuck's place. And what what's going on inside is that Ernie, who I guess was one of his friends from the mailroom in the previous scene, he still seems very young. Yeah. He's the guy they sent over to take over Jimmy's duties with Chuck. And what we're seeing is Chuck kind of putting Ernie through his paces and Ernie perhaps realizing, as a lot of people have already expressed, just what Jimmy was doing every day for Chuck. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was just a nice little scene where, you know, uh, Chuck says this great, you know, it's the sort of thing you want to say to waiters and people all the time uh, uh, if, if you're like me and I guess you too. Uh, uh, he, uh, Chuck says to Ernie when they're discussing the apples and he's saying he wants Fuji apples not Granny Smith apples which are too tart and not Red Delicious which are frankly tasteless or whatever and then uh, Chuck just says do you need to write any of this down? because it's okay if you do <laughs> <laughs> right it's alright to write that down meaning please write that down yeah please make me feel better by knowing that you have this down because I'm not I'm not looking in your eyes and feeling confident that 
Right. You're I hate this. restaurants where the guy doesn't write it down. <laughs> I guess it's well, just it's a, like it's always a fancy, expensive restaurant where they come and they don't write it down. Or it's someone who works at Chili's but is just really proud of of remembering stuff all the time. Yeah. But pe- people who do that, they always mess stuff up, you know, and they're always apologetic <laughs> right. and they're always nice. And they bring you a free dessert or whatever and you remember them as being friendly, but you also go, "Hey, you know what? You could have written it down." Yeah. And you wouldn't have had that problem. Anyway, I waited tables, so I'm not I'm not casting aspersions, but I think most people that have waited tables would say, uh, yes, writing things down is, is your friend. <clears throat> right. So Ernie's leaving, and he sees Jimmy outside, and they have kind of a warm moment. And it's kind of hard to tell whether uh, Ernie would be thinking, poor Jimmy, or whether he would be thinking, hey, it's Jimmy. I, you know, you just don't know yeah. at this point. But it seems right. like Jimmy's reputation might be might be better than, than, than bad. So it's possible Ernie's like a friend... Um, yeah. And Jimmy even asks him if he wants to go get a beer, and Ernie has to go back to the, the office, which felt like, felt, felt like a pointed thing to say, hey, you want to get a beer? And he's like, no, I have to work. you know. Right, right. Meaning, I have a job. But I love that moment when uh, Chuck notices that Jimmy's out there, and he's, he's slowly reaching for the doorknob, like he's almost going to go out there. Uh, it was just really poignant. Uh, and then Jimmy drives away, and Chuck missed his chance to try to make up, and, and so it's even worse. Oh, here's my pretentious thing. So then Jimmy drives into the familiar parking lot scenario where we've seen him go. And we don't know at this point, but I mean, seconds later, we're going to find that he's going. This is his meeting with uh, Davis in Maine. Mm-hmm. And uh, he drives, Chris, past Mike, going to the right or mm-hmm. the east. And then in the parking lot, he's walking up to the building and he's practicing what he's going to say to Davis in Maine. And he stops... And he feels the ring, and they cut to a profile of him, Chris, <laughs> that is exactly like a face on a coin. Ah. I mean, it is a completely fat, flat profile of him facing to the to the right of the screen. Mm-hmm. Then it cuts to him driving in the other direction past Mike, and he's facing to the left, yep, to the west, Chris, to the frontier, to the future, to a new adventure, um, and. Uh, and then he has to ask Mike. I mean, I don't know if he went back and wanted to ask Mike that question or if he just realized at this moment, I've got Mike, I'm just going to ask him this question, you know? Right. Let me stop and talk to Mike for a second. I love how in the moment this decision feels to me and yet how thought out and obvious and predestined it feels. Because I went back to that moment where Kim said that we've got this great thing waiting for you. And it sounded like, wow, this sounds like someone else's deal. This sounds like I'm going to be on the track to maybe get a partnership one day and I'm going to be working. And eventually these people will respect me. And I think that, uh, a, a, you know, before Marco died, maybe he would have thought, yes, this is what I wanted. Right. But na- now he's thinking, like, that doesn't make me happy. I'm still not doing it on my own terms. I'm still trying to get a place at the table yeah. uh, uh, with these people who have sort of not treated me that well. And maybe Jimmy's, maybe Jimmy's wrong to feel entitled, and maybe there's a certain amount of nepotism he was counting on. And maybe a lot of people wouldn't be able to get a job at a high-powered firm with a degree from the University of American Samoa. But I don't think Jimmy is supposed to think of everyone. He's supposed to, you know, he's thinking of himself in that moment. And I, I just feel like whether you want to believe it or not that this character would be able to have this this decision, he's clearly already leaving, not going to the meeting. So when he talks to Mike, I don't think he was going to turn around, depending on what Mike said, I guess is is kind of my point. Right, right. Well, they do such a perfect job of it with the simple symbolism of of the ring you know he touches the ring and pauses to think and and this is such a good easy way to show his his emotional path there because you just have you know you just think he's got to be thinking about marco 
his old friend, his, his, his partner in crime, literally, and thinking about what he likes to do and who he really is. And uh, so then, yeah, and then he's turned, he's, he turns and leaves, so you know he's already sort of made up his mind not to go in. So when he talks to Mike, I think he's just, he's already in sort of get me out of here and crisis mode. But he, he knows he's going already, but he stops to, to say, hey, yeah, uh, help me clarify my thoughts here. Yeah. Why didn't we, he says. <laughs> yeah. Why didn't we take the money? Right. And Mike says, I remember you saying something about doing the right thing. Uh, and he says, me personally, I was hired to do a job. I did it. And that's as far as it goes. Yeah. And, and, and then, I mean, that was awesome enough. Yeah. And then Jimmy says, one of those lines that is now going to live on as a great line because of the context of it, like uh, on Breaking Bad when Walt would say, tread lightly, or when he would say, you know, uh, say my name, <laughs> or mm-hmm. I'm the one who knocks. A line that on its own does not have this potency and meaning to it, but in the context of the show becomes this pivotal thing that's symbolic of like a character shift. But what Jimmy says is, well, I know what stopped me from taking, you know, he's implying, I know what stopped me from taking the money. I know what stopped me. And you know what? It's never stopping me again. I mean, I got goosebumps at that moment because I feel like that's what I had been kind of waiting for. And I was wondering how this episode was going to end on a beat that made me feel like there were a lot of great moments and great scenes and great great things going on, but nothing yet felt like the moment to end, the beat, the moment, the the fanfare sort of to end the season on, you know, yeah. because I just expected them to go out with a bang like that. And so then, you know, he drives away and he starts out looking distraught and then he starts uh, humming smoke on the water, just like Marco would mm-hmm. in the alley. And then the best grin ever filmed, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> crosses Jimmy's face as he kind of looks at the future and thinks about what he's about to do. And I feel like wheels are turning and he's thinking about his next scam. He's thinking about how am I going to use this lawyering thing how can I do this? Maybe he's even thinking of calling Nacho. Who the hell knows what he's thinking of? But in that moment at the end, Jimmy is thinking of something. Right. I feel like that's a very decisive way to end the season. It's one of the best new shows I've seen in a while, you know, like as far as coming out, being confident. Obviously, they had a lot of the house style of Breaking Bad to kind of build on, but it immediately established its own identity. And, you know, I'm, I'm... I, I do sort of feel like, oh, crap, man, now we have to wait 10 months. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But you know that they're not done stringing us along. So when when 10 months is over and we're watching the first episode, then the wait for the next episode is going to be painful. So let's at least enjoy the fact that right now uh, we can kind of relax for 10 months, you know. Yeah, I guess we could try to take a breath and, and just uh, yeah pretend that we're not in, in limbo for all that time. But, yeah, they really just took the, you know, after he says it's never stopping me again, and he drives off. It's just like there's no limits on him anymore. He's got, you know, permission story-wise to to go completely back to Slip and Jimmy if if he wanted to just abandon law. Um, you know, I mean, they could go that far and then have to give him a reason to come back to practicing law at all, or they could just do like you just supposed, where they just had where where what he's thinking as he smirks is, how am I going to uh, use my my newfound uh, powers of practicing law to uh, make myself a million dollars and and go to the Bahamas, you know. Uh, but maybe he is just thinking, I'm I'm just gonna abandon this track completely. Who knows? I mean, I don't see. I I feel like it's it wouldn't be satisfying to me to think that he's thinking of just running petty cons. I think that this is a new stage that he knows, you know, that what Marco said 
A, about it being the best week of his life, and, and B, about how he's, who he, you know, this is who he is, right? Right. You know, Marco kind of tried to tell him. But also that if you're a lawyer and you're not making a lot of money, you're not doing it right, you know? That like, right, but at the same time, what I guess what makes me suppose that is the fact that he didn't go ahead and go into the meeting. You know, he could he could go in there and join up with Davis and Maine and and use that as his base of operations for being a a, a slimy lawyer. I mean, I, I I understand what you're saying, but I think that it, it he can't do it on other someone else's terms. I I don't think that at that moment Jimmy McGill wants to work for somebody that. Yeah that prior to this wasn't taking him seriously. You know what I mean? Like, right. I don't think he's activated entirely by feelings of vindictiveness, but that grin at the end to me kind of speaks of a guy who's almost thinking like, you know, his next Billboard-esque moment. Like, what's going to be his next way of capitalizing now that he's not trying to impress Chuck? I mean, he literally says it right before that, is that the person who was standing in my way from being myself before yep. is not there anymore or doesn't yep. represent that to me anymore. They don't represent something to aspire to anymore, yeah. you know? Um, so it's a little bit of an indictment of, of the way Chuck handled things. And again, maybe if Chuck had come running out of the house to see Jimmy, maybe there would have been a moment where, you know, something could have been changed. But I think that we see it, the, it you know, it's, it's, it's Marco, you know? It's, Marco, it's Marco's ring reminding him of the fun he had that week and the fact that Marco did not seem to mind going out uh, in the midst of of doing something that he loved. So, and now we know Jimmy's going to be wearing that ring forever. Or at least, yeah, well, I guess we could say forever, but I mean, you know, the next time we see him, he may be buying brightly colored shirts and garish ties for all we know. Right. But I would say that, uh, from that interview with Peter Gould that I mentioned that I read, he, he basically says, don't assume that the transformation is complete just because you can see how it's going to go, that we still have to see how's he going to get into this world. And he said the same thing about Mike. He said, think about it. This guy who's working in the parking uh, lot <clears throat> and has has dipped his toe back into crime, he's not ready to be the fixer hitman for for drug lord Gus Fring yet either. Right. Neither of these guys is quite where we where we need to get them in their trajectory. Even though, again, you can imagine the next step. There's going to be a lot of bumps along the road to establishing, uh, you know, whatever little criminal empire Saul Goodman has. There's really not much more to say. We can kind of we could speculate a lot more, but it's not like we're speculating and we're going to have the fun of finding out in a week whether our speculation was accurate or not. So at this point, I don't have much else to say. I'm totally in the bag for season two of Better Call Saul, and I'm open to the idea of uh, season two of Saul Searching. So you know we might be back uh, next year uh, to do this again. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I think we might. I don't know. I just uh, uh, who knows what we're going to be up to at that time. Uh, it's so far away. Uh, you might have 12 other podcasts going on at that time instead of two or something. Or, uh, <laughs> you know, I might be in prison. Who knows what? I, I, so in, in, in that sense, you know, hey out there listening, thanks for doing so. We have, a, we have a decent crew of folks out there that have been checking us out on a weekly basis. And I want to say thanks to them for, for listening to the show. I also want to thank Jamie Parrish for giving us the nudge to do this. It was kind of fun. It, it, was, it was an obsession. I don't know if you began to feel like oh my gosh, I'm thinking about this show all the time. Maybe I would have been thinking about it anyway because it was great, but it did become a a, a, a major rabbit hole for me many times, like trying to be as up-to-date as I could, like reading interviews with the writers and directors and things. I didn't want, to, I didn't want us to be wrong about something. So I, I, I hope that the, uh, 
that the listeners appreciated our very literal approach to a recap, which is to say that we spoke about every <laughs> every every scene. Um, I think that's the approach I would have wanted to listen to, though, because you never know if what little detail is going to come if someone describes what could be an insignificant scene. I think your diligence pays off in interesting factoids. Whew. Well, somebody thinks so. Um, I have one other question before we completely end it, Chris, but before that, do you have anything you'd like to plug? I mentioned some of my podcasts already, but um, I also am in a band called Rosemary Stretch. You can search for that online and you'll find various songs and bits of info. But what, what do you have, Chris? Any plugs before we, we, we go gently into the West? If you go to saltyham.org, which is a, uh, it's a list of Alabama cartoonists that I've made online, but it's also a, a, an easy way to get to this page. You go to saltyham.org, and from that main page, you'll see me on the lower left, and down below that, you click on More About Me, and that takes you to my page on there, which has a bunch of links uh, to my stuff and stuff that John and I have done on there. Uh, you can get to comics that I've co-written with John and self-published and put up as web comics. Um, there's some cartoon animation there that I've done over the years, and you can uh, uh, follow the link uh, to our YouTube page if you want to see more of that stuff. And uh, also on the on the YouTube page, you can find an old short film that uh, John and I co-wrote and co-directed called The Electric Heartbreaker. Um, it's really old now, but it, you know it had a little following of passionate fans in its day, and uh, and we're still proud of it. So so check that out. Um, also, from that saltyham.org page, you can uh, you can get to my sketch blog, which I have not updated in forever, but, but you can see a, a whole lot of miscellaneous drawings and stuff there. And uh, so, so yeah, you just find all those links by going to saltyham.org, and then you, you click in the lower left under my picture where it says more about me, and that'll take you right to the uh, Chris Garrison page and all the links. Yes, I don't know if we mentioned before this on the show that you're a, you're a cartoonist and an illustrator. And I think we, we said just that much in the in the uh, first episode, maybe, and that was it. Well, hopefully, people don't think that that was too self serving of us. We just thought maybe if you enjoyed our our take on the world from this show, you might like to follow some of our other projects. And I feel like we've earned it. We've given them not just ten, Chris, but we've actually given them eleven episodes over the course of this run of uh, free entertainment. So hopefully, they don't mind us uh, running little commercials for ourselves. Yeah, go look at our uh, other stuff. If you like this stuff, go look at that stuff. Yes, it'll take you about 10 months to get through it all, and then we'll be back maybe with uh, Season 2 of Better Call Saul. I, in the meantime, I would suppose anyone out there listening to this show really should be following this, this, the show's Twitter account, at Saul underscore searching. Um, I don't know how active that's going to be for the next little while, but anything that comes up, if there's news about the show or anything worth commenting on, I imagine I'll hop on there and and, and you know squawk about it, so... So that's probably going to be a living thing. And as always, you can write us at saulsearching at gmail.com. I really only have one other thought for you, Chris. In the very first episode of this show, which was actually episode zero, we supposed that if indeed Better Call Saul was the tale of a man slipping into the abyss, you know, giving into his darker nature, right. um, uh, would examining this kind of story up close cause us to slip into the muck and mire of a of a morally ambiguous world? Do you think we've lost something of ourselves by recapping Better Call Saul? No. Hot talk. Hot talk. <laughs>